Well, welcome. I'm so glad you've joined us today. It's good to see some of you here. It's good to see all of you who are here. And, uh, and it's good to see um, some, some faces that we haven't seen for a while. Thanks for joining us online. If you're at home, we're glad that you're here. Please let us know that you're here. You can zoom out of the full screen, and there's a chat bar on the side of the screen. Uh, send in a comment or just say, hey, we're here. It helps us to know who's here. We see the number of streams, but we don't see the names of the people who are coming in unless they, they tell us who they are. And so that's helpful to know. Or send us a text or, a, or a, uh, an email or something. But want to stay connected as well as we can. Friends, you have made a great decision today. Congratulations. If you can do this for the next 50 weeks, you will be changed. No, I'm serious. This is a great decision. What a great way to start the year. What a good What a good call you made to offer your life, at least as you're able, this morning to say, I want to begin, Lord, first Sunday of the year with my church community in an hour of worship. This is a great structure. This is a healthy habit. And, uh, and this is what you were made for, ultimately. This can become a cornerstone, like an anchor for you uh, as we move forward into the year. And I hope that you'll just say, hey, this year it's going to be something I do all the time. I'm going to be here. This is going to be my rhythm. This is going to be, this isn't about an event. This is pretty low production around here. This is about a rhythm. This is about a routine. This is about a structure that we build in because we believe that what we're doing here ultimately matters. So I'm excited to launch into 2021 with a compassionate and yet very direct challenge to live and to claim victory in Jesus. Okay? The victorious life. We want to we recognize that we are followers or being, and we are being invited to follow the one who was born into this world to live and die as one of us and then rose again to conquer sin and death in victory. The Christian is invited to live a victorious life. And that doesn't mean that we're pretending that bad stuff doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that we're, that we're not feeling the challenges. It's not, it doesn't mean that we're ignoring the hard stuff. It doesn't mean that the pain is something that we're trying to pretend doesn't actually exist. Living the, the victorious life, it's not about smiling. It's not about being chipper. And it, it's, it's not about positive thinking. Uh, It's about living life. It's about dealing with the brokenness of this world with the distinctly Christian conviction that Jesus overcame. And so we can overcome. Historically, this is what Christians mean by victorious living. I received three phone calls this week asking me to help prepare for a funeral. Three in one week. Can you experience, these are hard phone calls, right? These are tough situations. These are people who are grieving in the midst of a really challenging time. Can you experience really challenging times and live victoriously in Christ? Yes, you can. They are not mutually exclusive. Several families in our, in our church are experiencing really challenging disappointment, deep disappointment as the year ends. Can disappointment coexist with victorious living in Christ? It can. It can. It's not mutually exclusive. Steve Scott, who's the pastor of our district, he oversees the 60 churches that we're in a network with, lost his mom on Christmas Eve and his dad a few days later. Can you experience that kind of, like, foundation, rumbling, altering, 
change and still have a victorious outlook? Yes, you can, because Christ has made a way in those kinds of spaces to, to experience his triumph over sin and death. This is the image that we're going to use for the New Year's series. In case you can't see it well, there's a lamb. It's an image of a lamb. And he's carrying a victorious flag that's emblazoned by the cross of Christ. This is an ancient image. It's known as the Agnus Dei, which is Latin for the Lamb of God. Uh, These are the words that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus and realizes who Jesus ultimately is. He He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in historic Um, communion liturgies or prayers from several traditions, an Anglican tradition, Roman tradition, Lutheran tradition, there's a prayer called the Agnes Day. And the prayer, the words of the prayer are, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, Give us peace. It's a prayer that acknowledges the combination of sacrifice and victory in the same place. Pain, suffering, and triumph in the same place. And then, in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, John writes, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John is speaking poetically about Jesus Christ who is the sacrificial Lamb who now sits victoriously on the throne in heaven. So the themes that we're going to explore in this New Year's series include facing fear and purposeful risk and intentional community. And today I'm going to focus on proactivity over reactivity. Being proactive in a world that has been and continues to be reacting. Essentially, at the start of this new year, I'm going to be encouraging us as a Christian community to live in a way that reflects the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is what we typically do, right? I always am trying to call us to follow Christ. My focus in this season is going to challenge us to embrace the teachings of Christ, specifically personally. Most of our teaching here focuses on the application on a communal level. We believe that Christianity is a communal experience, so I'm often inviting us to follow Christ as a community, engaging our city, engaging our world. But in this season, the start of the new year, in this cultural moment when, frankly, community life is so limited and cultural engagement's pretty restricted, I want to focus on this personal battle Okay, for holiness and health and self-control. So over the next few weeks, the focus is going to be on personal um, decisions and personal habits. Christians are called to love and serve the world in the name of Jesus. And doing that requires a certain degree of personal health, a level of structure and order in our own lives that enables us, gives us the capacity to care for other people beyond ourselves. I'm not saying you need to arrive at some level of perfection, I'm not saying you got to like achieve something in order to be useful. This, we work out our salvation and we serve the world together. These two processes go hand in hand. It's not one before the other. And as we work out our salvation, 
as we're serving the world, we're actually becoming in the process. So what I'm recognizing and what I'm inviting us to acknowledge is the degree to which over the last year especially, we have been negatively impacted by the progressive dismantling of structures which have for years supported our physical health and supported our communal health, supported our emotional health, supported our spiritual health. As the world changed over the last year, many of the structures that we've learned to depend on, many good structures that we've learned to depend on, they got canceled. And one of the results was that we watched TV more and we worked out less. We ate and drank more and we fasted less. We hunkered down and we focused on our own needs more and we spent less time focusing on the needs of others. Our lives were disrupted and routines got erased. And the structures that we've built over decades, patterns that we purposely formed for health and efficiency, these are lifestyles that we chose based on carefully considered values. These structures and, they pa- and these patterns, they got parked like a car in the garage, the car you no longer drive. And now it's been months, and there's Christmas decorations on top of the car, and there's deflated soccer balls that nobody played with this fall. And that car probably won't even start if you tried it right now because the battery's dead, right? You've almost completely forgotten about it. We haven't started that thing up since Valentine's Day. Who knows if it'll start? It only takes 30 days to establish a habit. And some of our good habits have been parked like cars in the garage for 300 days. So so it's changed us. We've been changed. In some ways good and in some ways not good. What I'm saying is it looks like it's going to be a while before there's any national call to return to normalcy. We joke in our office before the ollie ollie oxen free. Remember that? Before like come out, come out, wherever you are, the game's over. It's not going to happen. And so it's time for us to stop waiting and start recreating the life that we believe in. And that starts by building structures in our own lives to to support a specific way of living. Dependency on structures is not a bad thing. What's become unhealthy during a year in which many of the communal structures have been removed, things like going to the gym, things like going to school, Things like going to practice every day after school, you go to practice. Things like getting up and having a deadline because you got to go to the office. Things like going to church. These are communal structures. What's become unhealthy is the passive waiting for somebody else to put these helpful structures back in place. You need to put the structures back in place. I need to put the structures back in place. I took way too much time this year waiting for somebody else to put the structures back in place. I need to put the structures back in place. This is a new year, which means nothing, frankly, unless you allow the turning of the page in the calendar to serve as a catalyst for your own decision and your own resolve. So this is a new year, and that's the series title, New Resolve. Today's sermon is called The Proactive Response, and I want to look together at the Gospel of Matthew, the end of chapter 3. The scripture will be on the screen. This is the story of Jesus' baptism, and churches all over the world today are reading this scripture because this week is the Feast of the Epiphany, 
Wednesday, the 6th of January, to be specific, is the Feast of the Epiphany, which is a feast that celebrates the recognition of Jesus as the Son of God revealed to the world. It's the aha moment at the beginning of the scriptures. This is how Matthew tells the story. This is Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Galilee is this region up in the north. Jesus comes down to the river to be baptized by John, and John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I've come to establish a pattern for right relationship with God. I'm going to show everybody how to do it. And John's like, okay. And he consents. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that's our key quote for the morning. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Question. Why is God the Father pleased with Jesus? Answer. Because he's his son. That's why. Because he's his son. Period. End of sentence. Has Jesus healed anybody yet? No. Has Jesus delivered anybody from demonic oppression yet? No. Has Jesus miraculously fed anyone yet? No. Has Jesus preached any sermons or taught in the synagogue yet? No. Has he walked on water? No. He's not done any of these things. He's been living the simple life of a carpenter in an unremarkable town up north called Nazareth. But God says, I love him. I'm well pleased with him. Why? Because he's my son. That's why. Period. That's why I'm proud of him. Because he's my son. Two young men in our church community had little baby boys just this last week. Can you imagine how proud they must be here today, like two or three days in, as they look at their son? Do you think they're well-pleased with their sons? Yeah. I pretty much guarantee they're well-pleased with their sons. And these baby boys haven't done anything yet. Yeah, they're totally loved by their fathers. Why? Because they are their sons. We get that in a newborn context, and it gets all confused in a cultural ethic that says you have to deserve love, that says you have to earn acceptance. So we can imagine a newborn baby being loved by his father, but as adults, we struggle to believe that we're actually loved by God. So here's the story of Jesus beginning the pattern of life which we are called and invited to follow and it begins with Jesus at his baptism being assured of the love of the Father. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. In our language, we would say, I'm proud of him. This is my boy. I'm proud of him. That might be the epiphany that you need today. Just that. I'm not done preaching, but that might be, we might be done for you, right? The, maybe that's the epiphany that you need. I am loved by God. Not because of anything I've done or haven't done. He loves me. One reason, I'm his son. 
I'm the daughter of the king. This is the affirmation of truth. And then what effect does that affirmation of truth have on Jesus? Well, ultimately, Jesus knows who he is. He knows who he is. His identity, this is a big deal, because his identity is going to be questioned and challenged and assaulted for the rest of his life by the enemy of God and the sin of the world. Constantly, he's going to be questioned about who he is, but he will not waver because Jesus knows who he is. And one of the ways this shows up on an emotional level is that Jesus does not fear. He is not afraid. He is tempted to fear. I'm sure he understands what fear feels like at some level. But this much is clear. He doesn't live out of fear. He's not motivated by fear. The reason Jesus does what he does is never fear. The reason Jesus says what he says is never fear. The reason Jesus thinks what he thinks is never fear. He's never motivated by fear. What moves Jesus instead? It's this deep, loving trust in the Father. Why are you doing that, Jesus? Because I trust my Father. Why are you saying it like that, Jesus? Because I I trust my Father. We're going to talk more next week about fear and trust and the battle that we experience in the tension between the two. But where we see this dynamic, fear and trust, on full display in Jesus' life is in the very next sentence in this story. So chapter 3 ends, voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In the very next sentence, Matthew 4, verse 1 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So immediately after the baptism, right, Jesus' hair is still dripping wet. He gets up out of the water and he walks beyond the Jordan Valley into the desert. You can see his wet footprints heading off into the sand and he is going to be tempted and tested by the very personification of evil. He's not going to eat for 40 days. And we're going to hear about this temptation experience later in the Gospels. And he's going to reflect back on it. But at the core of each temptation is the question of identity. That's the core of all the temptations. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And that question, friends, is what many of us have wrestled with throughout 2020. This question of actual true identity. Who are you really? When the structures are pulled away. When the routines are disrupted, when the plans are canceled, when your hopes are frustrated, who are you really? When participation in community and meaningful family gatherings is arrested, is limited. Who are you? When it's all stripped away, who are you? Well, I'm the guy that does that cool thing. Well, that cool thing just got canceled, right? So who are you now? Who are you? Well, I'm the girl that's got all the friends at school. But that's not working the way it used to, is it? So who are you now? read some very discouraging statistics by the Barna Research Group this week on the effects of COVID on people who, according to their grid, are labeled practicing Christians. 
as opposed to nominal Christians, just Christian in name only. There's, there's a category practicing Christians, and they describe it and define it. The bottom line, lots of them aren't practicing Christians after one year of COVID. Lots of them have stopped practicing their faith, which begs the question, who are you? Let me expand on that question with these two questions. What do you believe enough to continue to practice even when the structures are gone? What do you believe enough to continue to practice even when the structures are gone? Second question, what do you value so much that you will recreate new structures, personal structures, to help support these values even when the traditional public structures like school and sports and going to the office and going to church aren't yet ready to return in their full form? That question again, what do you value so much that you'll recreate structures to support your own thriving and living into these things that you value? I'm challenging myself, and I'm inviting you to be proactive, to have a proactive response to this continued disruption of our lives. For too long, We've been reacting, and it is really easy to do, right? There's a new mandate. we got to change what we're doing. There's a new law, or there never haven't been laws, I guess, but new restrictions, new guidelines, and now we got to react, right? we got to do things differently than we were doing because the situation's changed. And now the, uh, that's just what we've been dealing with all year in our staff team. And we get everything kind of worked out, and then it changes again. And then we get a plan that's relies on nobody except the staff team, and then the staff team gets sick, right? we got to react again, right? I'm challenging us as we begin the new year to be to, to a proactive response. Now, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus in the wilderness, okay? That's where we can go for guidance on this. It looks like Jesus in the wilderness being tempted. Jesus, it looks like Jesus responding to temptation. In the records of Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, it appears, it appears that Jesus is reacting to Satan's temptations. He is not. He is responding proactively, and I'll explain the difference. Satan tempts Jesus to prove his identity by turning stones into bread. Then Satan tempts Jesus to prove he really is loved by God by climbing to the highest point of the temple and jumping off and and basically forcing God the Father to rescue him and show that he really does love him. Satan tempts Jesus to accomplish his mission, not through sacrifice and obedience to the Father, but by making a deal with the devil and going about it through some sort of shortcut, different kind of power. And each time Jesus responds to what Satan says, it may appear that he is reacting to Satan, but he's not. Reacting is changing what you do based on the situation that you're in. So you're driving down the freeway, car drifts into your lane, you have to swerve out of the way, that's a reaction. 
Carmen and I had plans to go to a specific restaurant on our anniversary. No indoor dining. We had to pick it up at the curb, right? That is a, a re, we had to react to the change situation. Reacting is changing what you do based on the situation that you're given. You have to change because you're dealing with life on somebody else's terms. And a lot of our life has felt like that over the last year, hasn't it? Things break. Plans change. The car won't start. Whatever. You have to adjust and move on. Stay with me here. Where reacting becomes unhealthy is when you allow someone else to tell you who you are. In my understanding, and I've done a lot of reacting all year, but those, the, the times I've reacted that have been the most unhealthy have been when I've allowed somebody else to define me, to try to tell me who I am. Like when you compromise your standards in order to be accepted into a certain group of people. It's an example. You're motivated by fear, so you act according to their terms in order to be labeled cool by them, right? You're allowing them to tell you who you are. In other words, we've been reacting, and, and reacting becomes unhealthy when life is so disrupted that things are just changing almost indefinitely for a long period of time, maybe like a whole year, and, and we're just trying to survive, right? It's like we're bailing water out of, a, out of a boat, and it springs more and more leaks all the time, and we're just bailing water out of this boat. That's the image I have over 2020. I'm just bailing water out of this boat. Meanwhile, I'm drifting or we're drifting farther and farther away. And finally you look up and you're like, what am I doing here? Right? What am I doing here? I've been bailing water out of this boat. I've been reacting to all of these problems. I've been living life on the boat's terms. I've been letting this sinking boat dictate who I am and what I'm doing. I should just ditch this sinking, drifting boat. I should just ditch it. Because I'm actually a good swimmer. <laughs> I, I know who I'm actually a good swimmer. I should just start swimming. Responding proactively is responding to changes or challenges or threats in a way that is consistent with who you know you are. That's responding proactively. It's a phrase I'm just trying on. You're, you're responding in a way that is consistent with who you know you are. I'm not arguing. I, I'm arguing that Jesus is not reacting. I'm arguing that Jesus is responding, but he's responding proactively. In other words, he's not responding on Satan's terms. He's not accepting this twisted logic that he's being given by Satan, which is if you really are loved by God, you'll do this magic trick. Jesus is like, no. I'm, no, I know who I am. My father has just affirmed who I am. So I may respond, but I'm going to respond in a way that demonstrates that I trust what my father has said. I hope that difference is clear. Jesus is responding to adversity, but he's taking his cues from his identity, which is who God says he is. That's what's guiding his response. And so as the new year begins, and in many ways, friends, our society just continues as it's been going. Nothing significant changes. May we respond proactively. Okay. 
May we restart good habits. May we reschedule healthy routines. May we rebuild personal structures that help support us becoming the women and men that God has called us to be. May we enter into this next season of our lives victoriously, not just taking what we're given, but proactively charting a faithful course into this new year that abandons fear. May we trust God. And may we respond to life's continuing challenges by living as proactive and beloved children of God. Amen? So God, we look to you for help and clarity It's not just another New Year's resolution meme. Not just a try harder. I'm I'm praying for grace, Lord, as we're surrounded by uh, high-volume messages. Grace to hear your voice affirm in our hearts and souls who we really are. And then to live out of that. To walk through the journey of life responding to the things that are outside of our control in a way that is deeply rooted in who you have said we are. God, help this church. Help us to trust you and not to be afraid. Give us the capacity to serve others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.